millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. <laughs> now, how are you doing there? It is David. Uh, I am having a giggle here with John down the tube about mad things that happened or are still happening around the world. We'll talk about them. I hope you are well. I hope you're not going as kind of stir crazy and bonkers as the pair of us. Uh, but we are now going into week 10 of the lockdown. Apparently, we will be able to see a couple of people, I think it is, uh, at a social distance. So uh, be prepared for all those people that you couldn't stand. And thanks, Billy Jesus, you didn't see during the lockdown. They'll be the first people to call around. Isn't that going to happen? <laughs> On that, there's a, there's a great, uh, I was just thinking, Jinx Lennon. Yes. With Jinx Lennon. He's got a great song called Gobshite in the House. Right? <laughs> <laughs> It's about what's going to happen next week. When you look out the window, there's a bing bong. You look out the window and it's a gobshite. And every gobshite in town is going to turn exactly. up. Exactly. And gobshite in the house is one of those great ones that nobody wants to answer the door to the gobshite. <laughs> and it's an internal conversation that he's having with his missus or his mates of who's going to answer the door. Right. So That's Jinx, first. he's a, a brilliant, brilliant, incredibly talented bloke. Jinx Lennon, the Dundalk troubadour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's that at the front door? Some old cousin they're going to be here for the next half an hour. Talking shit no one wants to hear about. The sound is coming to the bedroom floor. I'm going to look for a long wave radio station. See if they find some interference from a faraway galaxy. Hopefully drive them out. The gobshite in the house. Gobshite in the house. Yeah. We're waiting for them to go. 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 Yeah. Gobshite in the house. There they go, at the front door. One arm, one leg, one shoe. They're gone. Thanks for the fuck. <laughs> it's great stuff. So that's Jinx Lennon, one of the, one of Ireland's finest troubadours. Uh, what's the crack, my friend? The crack is good. And speaking of music, I was just kind of reflecting there last night about all the, the legends we've lost during COVID. Your legends? Well, you know, I'm going for Jinx Lennon. Who are you going for? Well, no, I'm talking about Little Richard. Did he pass away? Uh, last week, yeah. Um, or two weeks ago, was it, at this stage? Your man from Kraftwerk? Yes, yes. And your man Dave Greenfield from Stranglers? Yeah, I mean, the Stranglers, I would have... Uh, I, I, I got the Stranglers. Yeah, Do you know they what I mean? I really, really, really yeah. got the Stranglers. But he was the, he was the main sound. He was the keys. 
the, it was um, the keys and the bass, I remember, being yeah. quite a very, very kind of yeah. really pumping bass, the, the Stranglers. And the keys, of course, are the, are the Stranglers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as for the craft work, kind of passed me by. It, we were a bit young at that stage. They were kind of uh, a few years ahead of us. But the influence they had on all the 80s music and all the, yeah. the and electronic, electronic music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, I tell you, it was very funny. I remember on the craft work issue, there was always in my head a... Unfortunate, not for craftwork themselves. Mm. Unfortunate correlation between pretentiousness and craftwork, in terms of fans. Right, and that came out most visibly at the uh, Electric Picnic about <laughs> ten years ago when craftwork <laughs> played. And to be a real proper craftwork aficionado, you had to wear a cycling top because right. they had this European tour idea yeah. in the eighties where they dressed up in cycling kits. It's a bad look. That's a really it's a bad really look. bad look. Yeah. So you fellows of our age with big neds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thing. Looking like blue, <laughs> looking like multicolored condoms yeah. going to craft work. Uh, Mammals. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you've been you've been lamenting the past. I have grapes. actually. Yeah, I've been going through some some music and stuff and just got like they were all of those guys were big influencers. But yeah. little Richard, I mean, he was the king of rock and roll. I don't know much about him. Well, he was the very first guy who really was a showman. He had the whole makeup and all that kind of stuff and very effeminate. And But he... In the man, 1950s? Yes. As a black man? Yes. And he is- broke so many barriers down. But Jesus, he could he could really rock it out. Okay. Right. Dylan wrote a really lovely uh, tribute to <sighs> him. No, here he goes. Here we go. Go on. <laughs> but Dylan talked about how he played on the same bill and Dylan was just blown away by this guy. He was kind of... Which is experience nobody would have going to a Dylan concert. <laughs> That's kind of true, actually. Do you remember we went to see Dylan in 1985? Was, was it? Five. In Slane? Yeah. And he was brutal. Well... If he Come came on, out, objectively. Well, subjectively, first of all, if he came out and farted on stage, I would have just been well, maybe over, over the moon. But he was great. But I have to say, I've gone to see him a few times recently and I walked out in one of them. That's how bad he is live. Wow. Now. But anyway, okay. let's move on. Well, it's been a very strange week, John. I, I think what's very important is something like what's going on. It's really crucial to actually develop language to explain what's going on. Because the interesting thing is economics is not... the language you have. Well, it's not very good with language. So basically, if you think about where language comes from, okay, language comes from a willingness, a demand that humans explain the world. So that's where it comes from. Mm. So the more complicated the language, the more sophisticated the language, the more things we're trying to express, the more things we're trying to figure out, the more things where language allows you visualize things, okay? Language describe things. So when you have something like what is happening now which is a depression, a recession moving into a depression, but not like anything else because it's so associated with a pandemic, you've got to change the language. So I've decided to come up with a new term. Right, okay, go it's on, a good. pandition. What we're experiencing is a pandition, and that is an economic slump associated with the reaction to a global pandemic. And it's a totally unique thing. It demands completely different solutions because it's never seen before. Right. And it may well be the economic concern of the 21st century. Because if you talk to immunologists, what they're all saying is this will come back. Maybe not COVID-19, but But something. Well, yeah, there's a history of this. Yeah, every Some form of COVID. So this is going to come back. And if we decide that the way we're going to react to it is locking down, flattening the curve, all that sort of stuff, at least the initial phases... We are going to 
be faced with economic catastrophe associated with pandemics. And this, in a globalized world, is going to become more likely to repeat itself than less likely. So rather than call it a recession, because it's not a recession, or a depression, because it's not a depression, we should call this a pandession, because it's a specific type of economic crisis. And it's the type of economic crisis that it seems to me will happen with some regularity in this century. And as a result of that, we need to figure out a 21st century way of dealing with it. Do we have economic solutions to this yet? I mean, we're developing this all the time. This is brand new. We've been hit out of the blue. So we're kind of feeling our way. We are going in the right direction though, right? We are going in the right direction. But my point is that there's a huge amount of generals fighting the last war going on, right? Mm. So most of the economics profession is backward looking. It says this happened then, therefore we have the tools to deal with it. But nobody has figured out how to deal with this because it's never happened before. If you think of we always in the past reacted to pandemics by more or less allowing the pandemic rip through the population, the curve was not only not flattened, it was actually accelerated, it peaked. Mm. And then what we know about contagious disease. It was huge, huge Huge death. So I I contrast this, and I'm not talking about ancient times. We're talking about the Kansas flu, aren't we? Well, the Kansas flu is the 1918 flu, but there was another Asian flu that everyone's forgotten about in 1957-58, when our parents were alive. Yeah. And, well, our mums are still alive, obviously. Mm. But, I mean, when they were in their 20s and 30s. Yeah. And it killed between 2 and 4 million people worldwide. In 1957-58, it was an Asian flu. Yeah. came from Hong Kong. And... Interestingly, Jeez, you don't hear much about that. No, you don't. You don't. This is the interesting thing. Yeah. But they just allowed it was a flu. All Irish schools closed right. in 1958. And in the summer of 1958, when it peaked, in the summer when it peaked, there were more people dying in Liverpool per week than were dying during the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. And nobody speaks about it. Wow. Yeah. Why why was there a hotspot in Liverpool? There seemed to be a hotspot in the northwest of England. So right. uh, Manchester, Liverpool, very badly affected yeah. by it. And of course, because we've so much contact with Liverpool, it came over on the mailboat. So from what, what's the story behind that then? Like where was, else? Where were the other hotspots? All over. And then about, about 100,000 Americans died. Right. You know, uh, but they basically that generation's reaction to a pandemic was... It's an act of God because, and we need, it's, it's a health hazard, but yeah. we don't close down the economy. We, in contrast, have a totally different relationship with death than previous generations. And our yeah. view, and which I think is good, obviously, but it's a, it's a function of generational change. So you have a generation. Think about our parents' generations and the generations before that, right? Incredibly stoic people. Yeah. People who had lived through, who had, who had maybe a collective memory of the famine going back to grandparents before that, right? And they lived with this idea that bad stuff happens. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that the sanctity of life is there, but in actual fact, flus and pandemics and emigration and all these things just happen. But they were also a lot more religious then. So they put a lot more of their faith in, in well, whatever... Whatever the big lad upstairs is yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- we're talking about up to the 1950s. So that's yeah. not that long ago. But it's interesting, actually, when I was in India, I was I was quite taken aback by how cheap life was. 
and how life was regarded, particularly the lower class and the, and the, the very poor. Nobody gave a shit. Yeah, people lived and they died. Yeah. I, I really noticed that in Varanasi when I was there. Right, yeah, yeah. This year, because Varanasi, of course, is the place where the, the Hindus, if you can end up getting buried in Varanasi, you know, you go straight, you don't pass go. Yeah. You don't do any of the reincarnation stuff. Yeah, you go yeah. straight to the big man, okay, yeah. to Nirvana. But again, death was part of the ceremony of death. And every day there'd be thousands of people buried yeah. and be floating in the river. It's just part of the whole thing. I was actually in a, a, a little village once, because remember I went over there when I was doing the environmental science degree. And I was in this little village, went to this huge walk through this beautiful sandalwood forest with these guys. And we came into this tiny little village and there was just a dirt path for, for Main Street. <laughs> yeah. And in the middle, there was this pile of blankets that was kind of shaking and quivering. And I was going, what the, what the hell is that? And I went over and I lifted up the blanket and there was this old woman wow. on her way out. And I went, Jesus Christ, would somebody yeah. do something? And they just looked at me and was, nah, she uh, doesn't have long to live. So they actually took so her out of her to house. Go. And I, it was either, I think it was, it might've been cholera, which I should have probably gone nearer then, but they left her in the middle of the street. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think of that sort of idea, and then we take the opposite view, mm. right? Therefore, these pandeshans are going to happen. And the interesting thing from economics is we know it's not like the Great Depression, because that was policy failure followed by the Roaring Twenties, okay? Yeah. It's not like the 1970s recession, the one that many people older than us will remember, where you have an oil shock, yeah. and you have a massive recession. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like the 2008 boom bust, where you have a banking credit housing boom that collapses and has to be paid for. And nor is it like the recession that you and I will remember as kids from the 80s, yeah, yeah. which was basically a homemade recession. That was Irish manufactured recession through two series of awful governments, one led by your man, Gareth Fitzgerald, and the other one by Hawhey. And we made that recession at home. And it was an amazing thing. The whole world was booming in the 80s. Yeah. And Ireland managed, because of our own economic madness, to have a decade-long yeah. recession. Okay. And, suppose, and, the, and the, obviously the big difference then was our release valve was London or the States. Yeah. But that's not there anymore. So that's not there anymore. Yeah. So, so the pandemic is something that we need to begin to think about as something that will recur again and again. And the reason it'll recur, John, is that in a way, the pandemic is the biological cost of globalization. So what you look at, and I've, you know I'm looking back at a lot of history these days. Mm. What do you mean the biological cost? So if you look at other pandemics, there was a great Justinian pandemic in the Roman Empire. Yeah. There was the Black Death. There was the Kansas flu. Yeah. Right? I'm glad we continue to call the Kansas <laughs> flu. And Mr. Trump. But if you, if you look at all these pandemics were preceded by extraordinary periods of openness, of people traveling, people meeting people they've never met before, people going to places they'd never met before. The economy had globalized dramatically. So if you look, even you go back to the Roman Empire and the Justinian pandemic, which mm. killed about 20%, 30% of the population of the Roman Empire, okay? Mm. And particularly Rome. Extraordinary, extraordinary pandemic. What was happening at the time is the Romans had, under Caesar, and then a little bit later, they'd conquered everywhere from London, and they'd created cities from mm. London all the way to Babylon, to Baghdad, south to Jerusalem, 
into Egypt, all of North Africa, yeah. out into Dacia, which was Ru- Romania. Dacia, not Waterford, like. No, <laughs> the Dacia. I'll tell you a story about Waterford. Yeah, yeah, sure yeah. But so they had created this empire. And what do empires do? Empires allow people to flow all over the place. So what you got was people were meeting people they'd never met before. Yeah. They were living in urban areas they'd never met before. They were trading with people they'd never met before. They were exchanging ideas, mm. exchanging economics, exchanging money, and exchanging diseases. Of course, right? yes. So all so that's the, the Roman side. Yeah. Then you look at the, the Black Death, 1347. What preceded that? You go 100 years before that, 100 years before 1347, Marco Polo is going to China. Right, yeah. The reason he's going to China is everybody's thinking at the time, go east. East is where all the goodies are. Yeah. So suddenly what you get is you get the opening up. What happens is... This is the Silk Road. This is, and what, yes, this is the Silk Road. And what happens, so the Silk Road was always there. Yeah. But around 1100 AD, you get the Crusaders. Yes. The Crusaders are basically French... English and German knights who go to a place they'd never gone before called Jerusalem Mm. to fight the Arabs. They go to Jerusalem. They set up huge communities all over there. And what they're doing is they're bringing home all sorts of ideas from the East and spices and silk and goodies that they'd never got. Gunpowder. And loads of gunpowder. Of course, Mm. the Chinese figured that out, right? So suddenly, a little bit like, remember when we we were kids, Everyone wanted to go to New York. Yeah. It's a cool place. Yeah, yeah. So you can imagine like Jerusalem was the New York of the time yeah. or all these weird cities over there. Like, man, I want to go there. I want to hang out. In the lower. Jerusalem, the city yeah, that never sleeps. Exactly. <laughs> but that must have been yeah. the way, right? So what happens again is after the Crusades, the Europeans start to move to the East. They start to discuss things with the East. They start to trade with the East. They start, this is where the Genovese Navy and the yeah. Genovese traders start to sail up through Constantinople, through the Mar- the Bosphorus, yeah. into the Black Sea. Yeah. So again, a huge period of openness and invention and economic trade and people coming and going. Where does the bubonic plague come from? It comes from the far side of the Black Sea, which we've talked about before. Yeah. Genovese traders bring it back to Italy and Italy is weighed lace in the summer of 1347. And by the summer of 1349, half the population of Dublin is dead. Wow. That's amazing. But where is it? It's preceded by a great wow. period of openness, globalization. Yeah. So we've got globalization a la Roman Empire. Then we've globalization a la Florentine, Genovese, Byzantine, pre post Byzantine mm. Crusader Empire. Look at the 1918 flu. 1918 flu comes after a period of amazing openness. From 1870 to 1918, including the First World War, John, this is a period of intense globalization. This is when South Africa becomes populated by non-Africans. This is when the colonies are populated by non-local people. This is when Latin America fills up with Italian, Spaniards, Irish, Brits, etc. This is when America fills up. And what you have, again, huge movements of people driven by commerce, trading with each other, exchanging ideas, exchanging money, and exchanging diseases. And obviously what brought the Wichita or Kansas flu was the direct transfer of American troops to Europe. They were actually the vectors. But the period prior to 1918 was a period of great openness. What we think is that we are the only people innovating. We're the only 
organism that is innovating. But the disease is innovating too, and the virus is innovating. And they're trying to figure out... Remember well, this, evolution is, is a constant... Uh, it's a constant character in all these stories. Yeah. It's there. It's like the, it's like the sort of the shadow in the story. Yeah. And that's what, like, for example, Jared Diamond yeah. talks about. And he says, the disease is clever. And what he's meaning is that the disease wants to live. It yeah. wants to reproduce. Yeah. It wants to evolve. And so you see... It's so like Richard Dawkins' principle of the selfish gene. The selfish gene. gene. So if you come back to this idea, John, exactly, Dawkins' notion, yeah. right? So you come back to this idea that the biological cost of openness and globalization is a pandemic. And we see that in every single case. Because as we thought, these are crowd diseases. They love crowds, they yeah. love strangers. So we have to get our heads around that idea. So, just hold on there a second. Does this mean that there's an argument against globalization? It's an observation against globalization. I don't know if it's an argument. I think, but one of the absolute obvious consequences of this yeah. is deglobalization. That globalization, as we know it, as has been the dominant dogma since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. That is now going into reverse. Now, the question about diseases, John, or events, right, is that does the event change the world or does it simply accelerate trends we were already seeing? Right. And with respect to globalization, I think we were already seeing these trends. And it's clear to me now that America and China are on a Cold War II trajectory. Would, now, that, would that have been the case anyway? Regardless? I think it would have been. Yeah. yeah. I think, we, look, we went into 2020 with trade wars. Like, don't forget. Yeah. Trade wars, currency wars, et cetera, right? So, so the, you, it was in the ether anyway. Yeah. You know, are you, <laughs> in a roundabout way, are you saying that Trump was right again with his anti globalization stance? You know, was he, did he have an insight there or? I think that. Or is this conspiracy theory this again? Is, no, I think that, I think that in the same way as Brexit taps into a feeling. Trump tapped into a feeling. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the feeling is very much, and we spoke about it last, last week, about the, 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 the rise of the meritocracy. Mm. This idea that the elite are out there. So, for example, imagine you're an American now. You've lost your job, right? You want to get back to work. You don't have the disease, okay? Just, yeah. just go into the head of somebody. I mean, it's very, very easy to vilify these, these people, but you don't have the disease, Nobody you know has the disease, and if they have, they've got over it. Okay, just think that's right. Yeah. And you're a guy who left school at 16, 17, right? And you watch the telly, and on the telly are all these people, doctors and economists and fellows with master's degrees and PhDs, an alien subset to you, telling you, you cannot go back to work. Yeah. We know better than you, etc. That all feeds into this idea. But it's a much greater, greater thing about the, the notion of emerging powers and eclipsed powers tend to go to war. This is, goes all the way back to the ancient the Athenians and the Spartans. Sure. That there's an inevitability. That and we spoke war, about this as well with uh, the rise of Germany. Germany and, against Britain yeah, in the First World yeah. War. So basically as one power begins to rise and another power begins to fall. So America is the falling power. The Chinese are the ascending power there comes a moment where these powers tend to get into initially economic wars propaganda wars yep. ideological wars and then 
Cold Wars. And I think we're moving into that phase right now. So is there going to be a huge difference between this particular Cold War and the previous Cold War insofar as that this Cold War is we're going to be kind of living with COVID? That's interesting. I mean, we're going to be living with disease. So the, the idea is that the China-America Cold War, and we'll come back to this in a second, is, like the last Cold War, mm. going to force countries to take sides. It's going to split the world into spheres of influence in the way in which the period 1990 to 2020 did not. Right. So the period 1990 to 1920, communism disappears in the Soviet Union. You get this quasi-communist country called China, which turns deeply capitalist, and basically everyone's singing off the same hymn sheet, and we're all trading together, etc. So where okay? would this, this kind of divide, where's that line drawn? Then? Well, it's basically it's America versus China, and everybody else will make their choice as to where they jump. I think Europe would like to be kind of non-aligned, yeah, but won't be. I think the European disposition, despite our distaste of the American right yeah. and Trump and those guys... Europeans, basically Americans are Europeans stuck in a different continent. Yeah. That's what they are, right? Okay. And the best and the worst of Europeans. And I think the Europeans will go, will side broadly with the uh, Americans. But in the period up until now, we've spent so much energy and time making these links. So, for instance, the Russian gas and oil pipelines into Germany. So Germany are now pretty much dependent on Russia for their for their gas and oil, for their energy. Germany is dependent on Russia. So how does this line It's very interesting. The Russians, the Russians have a massive interest in actually staying out of this, siding with the Chinese when it suits them. Yeah. In places like Venezuela, we've talked about right. that before. Yeah. Siding with the Western Europeans when it suits them, like in Germany. Mm. And playing what the Russians are really good at is chess. Figuring out, remember that the Russian told me, he said, the Americans are playing Monopoly and we keep playing chess. Yeah. With respect to geopolitics, right? Yeah. That was very, very good, right? So the Russians have an interest in staying out of this. Yeah. But my sense is that this is where we're going and that COVID crystallizes an already fractious world where we were going that way anyway. Yeah. And then the idea of living with COVID, I actually think that this idea of, you know, the narrative is pre- and post-COVID. Yeah. People say, what's it going to be like post-COVID? And what was it like pre-COVID? I think we're going to have to figure out a new narrative. And again, this is what I come back to, the idea of language is really mm. important. So yep. the pandemic explains what we're going through. And people see it and they say, okay, that's what we're going through. Living with COVID seems to me much more likely because what it is, it's going to be like living with AIDS. Yeah. You know, it's not yep. a pre- and post. The, the, we will have to get used to this economy. Yeah. And take that as your framework and then see what do countries do? Now, I happen to think that this is an amazing opportunity for Ireland. I happen to think that the battle between China and America will be fought in supply chains. That the real change to the world as a result, the corporate world as a result of globalization, was supply chain management. That you could produce wherever the hell you liked, you could source whatever the hell you like yeah. from whatever whatever country. And what this made us was this made this crazy situation where multinational corporations had these incredibly long supply chains. Right. And incredibly fragile supply chains based on price. Of course. So you'd end up sourcing materials in the arse end of China. 
for example, mm -hmm. you had no idea who you were doing business with. You put the price in, the supply chain algorithm did the rest for you. And they said, source from that person. When I saw about four weeks ago, Germany and America and Britain and France queuing up and trying to outbid each other for Chinese essential manufacturing goods like yeah. PPE, big alarm. I said, that ain't ever going to happen again. So what's going to happen is supply chains are going to truncate dramatically. They're going to become much, much less extensive. Right. So much more manageable. And much more, and much closer to home. And easier to protect. And you will do business with people you trust. Yeah. And so there's another expression that I was thinking of, which was basically relationship capitalism. Ooh. That basically... In the supply chain world of globalization, we allowed price beat security. Yeah. We allowed ideas of cheapness and remoteness beat trust. And we allowed an algorithm beat relationships. So basically, it didn't matter who you were doing business with. Mm. That's all going to change now after this. Because you want to know who's on the other yeah, side of, of the line. So, so what does this mean for Ireland then? See, I think we have, if Irish people, not Irish people, the Irish state could just figure something out, which is the following, that our prosperity is based on, and as we've always said, small firms and multinationals, Yeah. right? We've talked about the small firms and, and, and helicopter money and looking after them as much as we can, right? Let's think about multinationals. What has made Ireland a properly functioning economy has been the multinationals yeah. because the capital transfer has been amazing. So in the period of massive globalization from 1990 to now, yeah. the name of the game was you source labor-intensive parts of your production in cheap countries like China, and you source capital-intensive part of your production in expensive countries like Europe. Yeah. And of course, Ireland, because we gave a tax holiday to capital, called a corporation tax rate, yep, yep, yep. we made capital incredibly cheap to deploy here. So we got this investment bonanza. So what we were doing is we were playing this supply chain game and we were an incredibly successful cog in this machine. That as many people argued that it gave too much money to the multinationals, et cetera, et cetera. But it, this is what happened. Mm. And as a result, American corporations invested, think about this, more money in Ireland than they did in Brazil, China, India, Indonesia combined. Wow, really? Think about this, right? Yeah. So the question is, what happens when supply chains become truncated? The Americans will want to do business with people they really know, that they have a really strong cultural and maybe legal yeah. familiarity with. What is the country that is closest to America in the global supply chain, given that they have to supply Europe? It's us. Yeah. And we are still, unlike the Brits, members of the European community. Yeah. The European Union. So what we could do, remember we talked about this idea of the shares and the taxes and taking stock and all this. Yeah. We now to realize that it is an amazing opportunity for Ireland to reset the dial and present ourselves as the country that is on the supply chain, which has now been truncated from China, because Americans will not do business. Yeah, yeah. In the same way with China, manufacturing and service industries could completely blossom here. But we've got to figure out our offer to the Americans. But uh, at the same time, I, I understand that. But at the same time, you know, Bleachman again has been going on about Ireland and it's getting the free ride. Bleachman is gone. 
Donald Trump will not win the election. Okay. Do you know why? Because you know, Joe Biden's going to do what Ronald Reagan did. Ronald Reagan with poor old Jimmy Carter, who everyone liked. Yeah. Ronald Reagan's slogan was, he's only he said in, in his first election, right? The campaign was, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And everyone was worse off. And he destroyed Carter. Yeah. Sleepy Joe, all he has to do is say all the time, are you better off now than you were four years ago when Donald Trump came in? They've 38 million unemployed people. I know, but that's because of COVID. Win. It doesn't matter. And then they're going to say, then he's going to point out that more Americans have died of COVID per head than anywhere else in the yeah. world. And he's going to say, we're the richest country in the world and we can't even protect ourselves. Trump is over. On paper, I totally he's agree over. with you. But he's a dark incumbent, horse. He is, a, but incumbent presidents only win when they have a record that they can stand over. His record is appalling. COVID has destroyed Trump. And he knows that you can see it in his eyes. So I wouldn't worry about him. But it doesn't right. matter whether Trump's in power or not. The same dynamic is going to happen. Biden is going to be like, he's going to take the Obama team, I suspect, and bring it back in, mm. more or less. Yeah. The most important decision he's going to make is who's his running mate. Because Biden, if he gets in, he'll be far too old to run again next time out. Yeah. I would love to see him make Elizabeth Warren his yeah, running yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And that makes sense for the Democrats. But to come back to Ireland, this is an amazing opportunity for us because we are the supply chain kings. And the supply chain is going to end in, in Europe, the yeah. American supply chain. Yeah. The West looking one. East looking one will probably end in Japan. But China will not be part of this game in the future. And ultimately, therefore, there is a massive prize for us to seize. But we've got to go and play the game. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And it's now time, as every week we promise you, for our Schumpeter slot. And this is about companies 
mainly Irish companies, but we've got a good few international companies as well. Companies that are doing stuff, that are changing their product, that are, to use an awful word, pivoting in the virus to try and beat the downturn. So John's been putting the hex, as he usually does, on a new company. Uh, by the way, if you ever get a call from John Davis and you have a new idea, if I was you, I wouldn't answer the phone. But here he is. So, Mark, I'm here with a husband and wife team, Joe Duffy and Mary Therese Burke of Safety Pois. That's P-O-I-S. And they're introducing a new product to the Irish market that helps companies manage social distancing, whether it's a, an office or a supermarket or an airport or a museum or whatever. But before we get to that, tell us what was life like before COVID? Well, John, first of all, thank you very much for having us on the, the podcast. We appreciate it. It's great to get an opportunity to promote a, a new concept. We've set up our business 10, Ten years, years ago. ago from uh, 2010, in the middle of the last recession, outsourced media. We decided it was time to go out on our own. And we were both very passionate about sports and rugby. So what, what was outsourced media? We are advertising sales agency for the sports industry. So our right. partners that we work with, likes of Leinster Rugby, Munster Rugby, Aviva Stadium, Thoman Park, yeah. RDS. So essentially you were doing the kind of advertising in the stadia. The yeah. commercial advertising, yeah. yeah. Right. So, so I'm sure sports has fallen off a cliff. Well, since since the announcement of the cancellation of the, the Ireland-Italy match, uh, sport has pretty much ground to a halt in the country, across the board, across all sports. Yeah. And... Rather than sit in our hands and wait for something to happen, we decided to look around to see is there anything that we can be doing while we're waiting for the, the seasons to kick off again or to resume again. And prior to pivoting, uh, Ooh, pivoting. and along with that's, that's pivoting. That's the word you like, John. Yeah, yeah, that's the word I like. Yeah, yeah. Margaret doesn't, but that, that's okay. <laughs> uh, coinciding with pivoting, yeah. um, we are obviously looking after our clients and liaising with all the stakeholders. Sure within sports. Just on hold at the minute. It's on it's on yeah. hold, but there's a huge amount of work going on in the background, really positive, and just really looking forward to getting back into the stadiums as quickly as possible. Yeah. But in the meantime... Yeah, so tell us, what's the what's the big idea? The beauty of the system, John, is, is that every employer that's, that's trying to reopen their workspace is faced with this challenge of how do they manage traffic flow within that workspace whilst maintaining social distancing. Our system takes the responsibility away from the employer and hands it back to his staff or the general public because it's intuitive. Everybody understands how a traffic light system works and what we do is we map out that traffic light system on the floor of their premise or workspace. So when you walk in, you'll either be on a series of green dots, which means you keep moving or you come to a red dot, which means you stop. Uh, If you're on amber, you have the right to pause for a few moments while you look in a window or while you speak to a, a colleague and then you have to move on again. So it's intuitive. But as I say, the key to it is is that it, it helps the employer manage those two key problems that they're facing. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been hearing a lot of talk about the responsibility and the difficulty of getting people back to work. So this is a an integral part of that. Yeah, and, and it's 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 a huge problem, not just for the next month or two, but this could go on into 18 months to two Absolutely, years. Yeah. And how do you manage this on an ongoing basis? And to be honest, you're putting manpower at the door of your building and saying, okay, no, we have too many people in there now. You're going to have to wait out here in a long queue in the rain. It, it's going to prove very, very difficult for people to manage this. So that's what our system safety poll, we hope, will, will bring to the marketplace is, is a, a mechanic to manage that for the employer. Okay, and so tell us, how does it work? Well, to give you a good example, currently when I'm going to supermarkets, it's great. I'm queuing outside the door. There's two metres distance, all feeling good. 
the minute I walk through the door, it's a free for all. Right. People are reaching over you at the shelves and it's only until the point that you get back to the till, there's a dot to That's queue. right, yeah, yeah. Safety point resolves all those issues, but you're managed the whole way through and it is intuitive. So essentially you can guarantee social distancing, whether it's in a supermarket or in an office. But unfortunately, John, when human beings are involved, it's very hard to guarantee <laughs> yeah, anything, but it's as near as you can get because, as I say, this the system is, is based on, on human intuition and we all understand the traffic lights. But by and large, we believe people will and have been, it's, it's been proved to be a huge success in Italy. And the results are now gone into the, the French, Spanish, German it's markets. It's been rolled out in Australia. And wow. So you guys here are looking after the, the Irish side of this. And the partnership goes across the UK as well. Right. This is going to solve a fairly immediate problem in the short term. But what's the future look like? Well, I think in the long term, this will work across all sectors, whether it's airports, museums, shopping centres, corporate offices. Once it's in place, it will manage yeah, the traffic yeah. flow in these environments. For the, the consumer, it's making them feel comfortable in the environment. So visiting the supermarket on a more regular basis than they have been doing over the last seven yes, weeks. Yeah. And therefore that turns into revenue for the supermarket. Yeah, some of the best ideas are the simplest ideas. Very simple, yeah. And we as an Irish company are bringing it to the Irish market. We're bringing the concept from Italy, but we are producing it here in Ireland, supporting Irish companies and protecting the supply chain. God forbid there's a second or third or fourth wave across Europe. We'll still be able to get our product here in Ireland. Well, listen... Joe, Mary Therese, thanks a million. That's safetypois.ie. You can contact us on info at safetypois.ie and we'll get straight back to you. Brilliant. That was a fascinating company. That's Joe and Mary Therese. I'm wishing the best of luck. And again, keep your ideas and your company ideas and your nominees for these Schumpeter slots coming. You can probably best is probably tweet them to me at at what is my Twitter handle again? At David MacW. So at David MCW. Mark, remember we were talking before about the helicopter money and, yeah, the, and the ECB money. I was reading during the week about the goings-ons in the German constitutional court. Ah, yeah, yeah, how yeah. Very that, interesting. Yeah, but how does that affect your thinking on funding and the bailout, as it were? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not really a bailout, but I'll come back to you, right? So the German constitutional court, the guys with the funny red hats, you might have seen them, <laughs> right? Uh, they are, let's go back, right? When Germany, the Federal Republic of Germany was set up in 1947 by Konrad Adenauer, probably the most interesting German politician that nobody knows much about, but he was the post-war leader of Germany. They set up two institutions that really defined the Federal Republic. One was the Bundesbank, which looked after the money, and one was the Federal Court in Karlsruhe, which looked after the Constitution. Right. The reason these were so important for the Germans is, one, they believed that the hyperinflation of the 1920s set the scene for Hitler. So they said, we will never allow that happen again and we're going to create this institution that's going to look after the money of the people and the West German Deutschmark will never, ever, ever inflate again because inflation threatens stability. Right. On the other hand, they set up the Constitutional Court and they said, this is the most important institution in the land because it guarantees that any German citizen, if a German government does something that they believe is anti-constitutional, they can go to the constitutional court and they can say, 
watch what these guys are doing. Anybody. Anti- can do anybody. Right. And the reason is, of course, that Adolf Hitler was a politician that destroyed the German constitution right. and then used the constitution against Jewish people and all sorts of things, yeah. right? So these are two incredibly important organizations, institutions for the Germans. They are the basis of the Federal Republic and the Federal Republic is Germany, the old West Sure, Germany, sure, right? sure. Now, the Germans come into the European Monetary Union basically in this unbelievably ascendant position. And they said, and I know this because I worked in the Central Bank in Ireland doing the Maastricht Treaty and all this. They said, we will acquiesce to giving away the Deutschmark and replacing it with this European currency, the euro, if you undertake to make the European Central Bank basically the Bundesbank with different languages. Right. And in the European Central Bank's constitution are all these ideas that reflect basically Bundesbank thinking and obsession with inflation. Okay. So now you fast forward 20 years. The obsession with inflation has disappeared because now the problem is deflation. But still the German thinking, they're called ortho-economists, ordo-economists, right? It's a German economic strain, school, called the ordo-economists. They have become, interestingly, from having been the mainstream of German economic thinking, they have now become a kind of an eccentric bunch who believe that the Bundesbank can be rekindled. They believe the European Central Bank has deviated from its Germanic qualities. In effect, they believe the ECB has been taken over by Italians. There has been an Italian right. coup d'etat, okay. and there has been. We can whisper it, but that's actually what's happened. Right. Is that so what, they've taken back the Bundesbank. So what they don't understand is that, in a way, Germany has lost the battle, right? That by... Ceding sovereignty to the Europeans, they diluted their own mandate. And now what they're doing is they're fighting the last war. So they're going to their own constitutional court, even though that court has no competence over the ECB. And they're saying, please stop this. It's a bit like, you know, what happens in the truce in in Ireland, right? The IRA became, remember the real IRA? And they were the holders of the flame and they were pure. But basically the world had moved on. And so what you have now is that the people who loved the Bundesbank, who are German academics, are taking these cases against the European Central Bank in the German Constitutional Court, but the German Constitutional Court has no mandate over the ECB. So it's like a, it's like a court that has no mandate, right? but it reflects a feeling in Germany. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, not only have they made this their crusade in the German Constitutional Court... But in actual fact, the alternative for Deutschland in the Nazi party yeah. came from an economic academic fighting for the purity of the Bundesbank. So they've weaponized the Bundesbank so much that they created a fascist party out of it. Jesus Christ. And the AFD is not really anti-immigrant, as everyone says. It's anti-Italian because the battle is actually in the Bundesbank and in who controls money. Back to what we talked about before. Who controls money? Who gets to print it? What the Constitutional Court have said is that the ECB will have to explain to the Germans what they're doing. But the interesting thing is the ECB is answerable only to the European Court of Justice, not the German Court. Right, So of it's kind of, they're playing to a German audience with no power. But the question, the bigger question is, even if the court has no actual competence, yeah. right, and it's actually 
a bit like Sancho Panza, who was our friend Don Quixote's mate. Oh, yes, yeah, it's yeah. Actually, yeah it's actually fighting windmills. Yeah. But does it reflect a deep chasm within Germany about the way in which the European project is going? Because they're saying, hold on a second, there has to be an end to all this money printing. Right now, you can print money because there's no inflation. Yeah. So the ECB's problem is not inflation, it's deflation. Yeah. But the straw in the wind is, is this the beginning of a German movement against the euro? And if it is, where does that end? That's the next big question. How are you doing there? How's the lockdown going for you? Why don't you use it usefully to learn economics with me? Let's learn it together. What I have is the Trinity MBA course that I give. This course is largely based on that course. It's called Global Economics, getting your head around how the economy works. So have a listen. The intro is free on Patreon. If you like it, join up. There are thousands of us doing it now. Let's do it together. Cheers. Flimsy staying slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.